Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, CIUT 89.5 FM, your local community radio station, your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. Stefan Hostetter is a pile of monsters, a pile of monsters. Um, that's psychologically accurate. I've been speaking to a shrink. Oh, okay. Um, that seems like my shrink is violating some serious laws. Yes, and those laws are now writhing in agony under the weight of the monsters that you ontologically are. Yeah. My name is David Hostetter. And I'm Stefan Hostetter. I'm Lauren Latour, and I'm currently trying to figure out if the floor in my hotel room is wood or laminate. Lauren is joining us from Calgary. She has just turned off her video. We're, we're afraid for her well-being. <laughs> Stefan was speaking with Stephen Thomas from the David Suzuki Foundation, the Energy Dude. Yeah, I mean, the Energy Dude is his professional title. He also goes by Clean Energy Manager uh, to his friends. His friends call him the Clean Energy Manager. Yes. And they invite him over, like, is the manager coming? Oh, yeah, exactly. What on earth will you be discussing? The feds are putting together a clean electricity regulation, and the opportunity to comment on it is coming to close in the next couple of weeks. And so we're talking about why it's important how you can comment, and what you should say if and slash when you do comment. Now, how effective is the commenting? I mean, it's the number one way you can tell the people what you want. We've seen coordinated campaigns in the conversation, actually. Uh, Stephen Thomas talks about how he thinks we wouldn't even gotten here had there not been such an overwhelming push to even have this regulation at all. So the fact that they're considering the re- considering the regulation and going to put one forward is a pretty big win, and now the question is, can you get it to be as successful as it needs to be to get real change to happen? I, I, I think we can judge the work that has happened on it so far as being quite successful, if only because the opposition is as fierce as it is, like the like the drummed up lobbied opposition of the oil and gas industry. Like I was listening to like a completely unrelated podcast, like like something from the States on gossip. And one of my like targeted podcast ads was this unfortunately quite effective spot where it was like people saying like, oh, like we're going to miss our mortgage payment. And like, I can't play soccer this summer as like, as like this kind of fake false equivalency of like your, your um, energy prices are going to rise so much if the feds get away with this regulation. And then it took you to a really, again, an unfortunately really effective website. Um, so the oil and gas lobbyists are out in spades to push back against this regulation. So um, so it's really good that folks like Steven and the folks at DSF and grassroots activists are pushing as hard as they as hard as they are for 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 this clean energy regulation to pass. They are apparently driving a car around Ottawa with signs saying how bad this is. This is apparently the level they've gone. They're driving a truck with anti this regulation signs. Are you in possession of a cookie cutter thing that I can send my legislative representative so I don't have to think about this issue at all? I'm not in possession, but the David Suzuki Foundation is actually, because apparently commenting on this kind of regulation is super annoying because they make it in like a weird portal. And so they have set up a system on their website, which lets you do it, which we do talk about in the interview. And we'll be getting to some climate news in a second. First, I'll just mention everybody knows now, of course, I guess, that the Hamilton member of provincial provincial parliament, Ontario, Sarah Jama, has been kicked out of the Ontario NDP for speaking out on Palestine. First, of course, two days after the Hamas attack, she was like, free Palestine, stop the Israeli occupation. And calling for a ceasefire. Calling for a ceasefire. And then she was told to resign by Doug Ford and the interim Ontario Liberal leader. And Merritt Stiles, the Ontario the, uh, leader of the Ontario NDP, said that she should retract her statement. And she did, and she apologized. And they, they set out a joint statement, which was, I guess, just slightly watered down or something. But then Doug Ford accused Sarah Jama of having a history of anti-Semitism, which is just insane. So she sued him for defamation, not for money, but just to be like, you have to apologize. Like this is a cease and desist order telling him that he has to retract his statement that she's had a history of anti-Semitism. And she also, Sarah Jama also spoke out in the House of Commons, the Ontario House of Commons, it was called, right? And she said uh, that she called, she called for a ceasefire. And that caused Merritt Stiles and the leadership of the Ontario NDP to actually kick her out 
of their party. And she's also been cens- censured by uh, the con- pr- by the conservatives, um, so she's not allowed to speak uh, in the House now. And she's an independent. Uh, the liberals abstained from the vote, and the NDP voted against her censoring, but she was kicked out of the party. And the CTV article that I was looking at about Sarah Jama said that Hamas killed thousands of Israelis uh, in the article. They killed 1,400. And so thousands can mean really anything. And so even in the reporting on this issue, they're, they don't care about the accuracy of their statements so much. They're just apologizing for this crazy crackdown on one, one, literally one politician in Ontario speaking out about Palestine. Uh, I should note that more recently... Uh, Dr. Jill Andrew, who is a another NDP MPP, has come out saying that they were not actually informed that this was going to happen until it basically happened. Kicking her out. Yeah. And so it, the statement originally sort of implied that it was sort of a full decision, but it sounds like it very much came uh, from from the higher ups rather than the the whole the whole set. And so, I mean. Again, I don't know enough about all the back room things that or any of these types of issues, but like this looks awful and it undeniably will drive people out of the any belief in electoral politics. Like it's if you wanted to make a case that real change can't be made in electoral politics, I'm not sure if you could have done something more in a line with that belief than the series of things that have happened in this particular story, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking here at how to, how to advance really, you know, when we talk on the show about some of the really, really, you know, progressive changes that we need to see the drastic change that have to happen. If, if there's that kind of response to people coming up with, you know, differing ideas of how the world should work, then we have a very hard battle ahead of us. And and so yeah, it's again, it's it's very disappointing and really, really hard to imagine how the honestly the Ontario NDP comes back uh from this, given given the response from the grassroots of that should be the grassroots of their party has been that I've seen over the last that last couple of days. But yeah, well, I think that's the thing. I think this is just like this is another nail in the coffin for a lot of folks on the left for the NDP, um, because this is another example um, following some like several at the federal level of um, of them refusing to get behind progressive grassroots um, kind of I, sponsored is a weird word to use, but like grassroots sponsored um, either candidates or or folks once they're elected. For those who maybe aren't familiar with with MPP Sarah Jama, she um, was recently elected in a by-election sometime within the last year, I want to say. Um, and she's a disability justice advocate and activist. She's um, a disabled person herself. She's also a woman of color. Like I said, she comes from a very um, progressive leftist activist community and was very much still tied to and representative of that community in a way that not a lot of elected officials are. Even if elected officials do come from the grassroots in some capacity, a lot of them end up dissociating dissociating isn't the right word but um i guess yeah disassociating themselves from progressive um organizing communities in some capacity and jama was somebody who had who hadn't done that and that was demonstrated in her statement on um supporting gaza so like this is i think this is par for the course for the ndp i think um in addition to them being upset with sarah over her recent statement I think it was also honestly like probably a bit of I think her time in that caucus was always limited I think they were probably seeking and looking for a reason to kick her out similar to the way that they've looked for reasons to block other progressive candidates in the past it's not just disappointing like 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 you said Stefan it's like I think this is something that is really going to act as a disservice to the party in the long run as they try to appeal to um, anybody other than the middle I'm also incredibly disappointed with the lack of support that Sarah has at least publicly been shown from other NDP um, representatives. It doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't having conversations privately or behind closed doors, but I know um, to speak personally, I've always been exceptionally proud of my MPP, Joel Harden, who is also um, 
in the NDP provincial caucus. And at least like, like I said, I don't know what their conversations are like behind closed doors, but like I'm looking on his Twitter right now and he hasn't commented on, on, on the situation with Sarah at all. And that's incredibly disappointing to see. Um, because he is somebody who himself was um, chastised by the party back, I think, in 2021 or 2022 for a statement that he made in support of Palestine. So I really would have expected him as somebody who clearly probably does have politics very much in line with Sarah's. And um, as a an older white man who has now been elected a couple times uh, provincially, I, I, I would have expected him to make a more public stance in support of her and in support of Gaza and Palestinians who are currently under siege. Um, so it's it's really upsetting to see the party kind of go in this direction. And then again, not to see um, other progressives within the party or within the caucus at least show a little more force and a little more support for her. What is truly possible at this point is that the if the liberals elect Nate Erskine-Smith, then they very could easily could take the left from the NDP at this point. Like, his policies include a bunch of asks that the federal NDP have refused to sort of run with in any real way, um, and that, that we haven't seen put forward in other places. And he is on one of the lists of people calling for a ceasefire right now. Like, it, so there is a real reality here where that the NDP can get flanked again on the left by the liberals. And I'm not saying the liberals are going to nail this and are going to be amazing. Like, I don't really have any faith. They just want to get elected. But like the fact that they could allow this to happen again after what happened with the win government just the last like two elections ago, you, it blows my mind that they might that they might allow this to happen. And it's just, yeah, it's depressing. And, you know, you just got to hope that the that the younger progressive wave of those of us who are, you know, coming up are able to, you know, begin to either, you know, find new ways to exert our power in, in this political system with the outside of the electoral system and also find our allies inside the system to, to change things. And part of the apology Merit Stiles is made trying to save face being like, no, we do support Israel in spite of what Sarah Jama says was like saying that she has Palestinian family members, that Sarah Jama has Palestinian family members. And so to allow, and so to instead of cave to a guy like Doug Ford saying that she's anti-Semitic, it's just you know allowing racism to push down their own member, which is just insane. climate news tell me why i'm saying these things but a, <laughs> a new study uh in science advances is showing that antarctica lost 7.5 trillion tons of ice from 1997 to 2021 the guardian quotes benjamin davison the study's lead as saying quote we expected most ice shelves to go through cycles of rapid but short-lived shrinking then to regrow slowly instead we see that almost half of them are shrinking with no sign of recovery a new study in the journal Scientific Reports has found that since 1990, major Atlantic hurricanes have become more than twice as likely to occur, and 21 more species of animal and plant are officially extinct in the United States. Yeah, so I mean, I'll try to answer that question, because it's literally the thing I was thinking about when I read the first three, because you know, there are times when I try to sit back and accept and sort of like... I know embodies the wrong word. Maybe feel is the easiest word to use. The scale to which our Earth systems are changing. You know, and it honestly feels in many ways that this is somewhat sort of beyond my ability to do so. Like, how on Earth do you visualize or come to even appreciate the concept of 7.5 trillion tons of ice? That is so beyond comprehension like you ever see those things about like tr people trying to explain what a billion dollars is like and it's like you could spend a dollar for the rest of your life every second and you still wouldn't come close this is a trillion and it's a ton which is already another thousand so you're talking about like just enormous enormous amounts of of change and then like on the on the other side of this how do you imagine or appreciate what the loss of 21 distinct species is like, right? Like every individual distinct species is an entire 
like history of biological change that has now been struck from the earth and we're just here living it and like twice as many hurricanes okay that's at 1.2 approximately we're at right now 2.2 we're at four times many hurricanes and like i was sitting with a climate a youth climate activist uh recently and we were talking about mental health and and sort of how in the ways that we're not really supporting youth in terms of their mental health and around climate change. And the thing that she said to me was, just do not invite me to another climate anxiety cafe. You know, like, I, I, I don't really want to sit around just talking about my feelings either. And I, de- but, and, but I also, I also don't want to turn away. I also don't want to like, just be like, oh yeah, another 21 speeches are gone. Oh, that's cool. Cheers. I'm going to go try to make myself useful again. And so there's this, there's a tension between like paying enough attention to really appreciate and understand the loss that's occurring and also not just burning out from the overwhelm of the vastness of the changes that are happening and trying to find a way through this middle ground is something that I personally have not figured out, you know, beyond some things, you know, like some beyond some like ideas of like, you know, active hope or some of these ideas of like believing you will win even when you see all the problems in front of you and just keeping at it, keeping at it and believing that like the work is where the good is. But like that still feels a little bit like you're just telling yourself something to keep yourself going as the whole world burns. I have nothing other than that. That's my thought. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, in case you were feeling too good about about (laughs) tuning into the show today. Um, No, okay, so, like, a couple things. Oh, God, let me see if I can, like, parse out and organize my thoughts here. But, But, like, yeah, like, I totally understand where that youth activist is coming from in terms of, like, yeah, no, like, I don't actually want to go to another conversation on, on ego anxiety or, like, climate grief or whatever. I, I had somebody it was a date. It was a date I was on on Friday, <laughs> Saturday or whatever. And, um, and the question that he asked me was like, how do you deal with like the grief and the dread that you must feel all the time? And I was like, oh, straight up. I just don't feel it. That's it. That's it. You just don't feel it. It's like, the joke is like, as millennials, we're all just collectively, well, and Gen Z as well, just like really good at compartmentalizing. And like, that's what it is. You just, you have to, you coach yourself. And like, over time, I have learned not to feel these things and think about them too consciously. Because if you did, how could you get out of bed? And you, you couldn't, you could not get out of bed if you actually consciously thought about what, like 7.5, um, trillion tons ice loss looks like right um or like the fact that yeah like 20 21 species of animal were lot like it, it just in the united states alone like i'm starting to cry now just thinking about it because it's like if you let yourself even dwell on it for a second you just want to go catatonic let alone like quote unquote attempt to do the work in light of that right or have any hope like literally just function on a day-to-day basis if you really sit with the weight of the shift that we're experiencing and when he's like like what does like hope look like or what does like for the future look like and I'm like okay in in like my depths of despair if I'm really really sitting with it and people might have a problem with this because it's like we're trying to have these conversations about what like I don't know apocalypse really looks like or whatever or like sunsetting an old world and 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 opening up a new one and like that whole idea that like we need to be able to imagine a future that free from capitalism anyway I'm I'm not trying to to be like the super like negative doomerism white lady here but like honestly what gives me hope is the idea that in a couple million years from now this will this too will be a blip on a planetary scale it's going to be so 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 awful for a really long time and a lot of people are going to die and a lot of species are going to go extinct but on a planetary cosmic scale this too shall pass and like that that's it (laughs) that that's what kind of gives you not even hope just perspective is is trying to bear in mind that like we're just on a rock floating in space in infinity and none of us can even really I have a hard time comprehending what 7.5 tons trillion tons of ice looks like let alone in the infinite expanse of the universe well you heard it here the solution is to melt psychologically into the mindless womb of the universe itself 
and that interconnected oneness. story, UK energy think tank Ember is reporting that half the world is already five years past their peak fossil fuel use for electricity. Uh, the data man for Ember, Dave Jones, is quoted in the energy mix as saying, quote, not many people realize just how many countries' power sectors are already well into a phase of fossil decline. For many countries, this was done simultaneously to rising electricity demand. So they're saying that many, half the world's economies, they say, when when that word comes out, I don't really know, but half the world's economies are already well past, are already moving beyond fossil fuels in their electricity sector quite rapidly. Uh, But the IEA reports at the same time that this phenomenal growth in renewables is still coming along with too much fossil fuel use, and they're predicting 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming. Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Mostly good news, obviously, except for that last sentence. And it does go really hand in hand with the interview that we're doing next. And so if I, if, to give ourselves even a piece of positivity uh, before we go to break, and then the, I will guarantee you the interview with Stephen Thomas is very much about how great things are happening and celebrating some wins. And so positivity is coming. But in that conversation with, with Stephen, he talks about exactly sort of refuting the podcast ad that uh, that you heard, Lauren, about how that really at this point, electricity and especially renewable energy plus storage is now cheaper than almost every other type of power, period. And I believe at this point, solar and wind are the cheapest energy we've ever had access to at all. And so there is very much a world where people are lifted out of energy poverty by renewable energy and and that investing in renewable energy will bring both a better world for the people who are living in poverty and also for the world and that's something that we can start doing immediately and will make just things better for people and it's happening ever it's happening again if that's true half the world economy which i might presume must mean from gdp perspective is seeing that and you know the news on renewable energy has consistently been that outstrips predictions and so That is all reason for hope, even if we've lost 7.5 trillion tons of ice. No, that is that is a reason for hope. And and the the last sort of thought I'll have is like, so, yeah, the IEA predicts that we're still on track for 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming, which is way too much, way too high, 100 percent. But I feel like I remember a time in the not so recent past when we were more so on track for like 3.7 or something insane like that. So 2.4 is yes, nobody's saying that that is sufficient and that we can we can leave it at that. But what that does indicate to me is that is that progress is happening. It's slow. It feels like it's not happening at all, but slowly we're chipping away at that. We're, we're, we're kind of, we're lowering that, that line of tangent that, you know what I mean? Gosh, I really should have paid more attention in all of my data analysis classes, but like the, yes, that, that sharply increasing line is, is the, the degree is shifting a bit, which is nice. Sorry, is what I'm trying to say. Oh my God, go to break. excited to welcome back Stephen Thomas, the clean energy manager with the David Suzuki Foundation, to chat about these upcoming clean electricity regulations from the federal government and more generally how we're doing in terms of 
tackling the need to decarbonize our grid while also ensuring that folks can afford their power. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm really excited for the conversation today. Yeah. So let's start with the sort of basics from a standpoint of what's happening at the federal level. So right now, I know there's a upcoming regulation that they're moving forward on. Can you just give us a heads up about what that means and what that is? Yeah. So, so for folks who hadn't been following this before, this is all about clean electricity. This is all about how Canada gets to zero emissions, affordable, reliable electricity by this target year of 2035. Something we've been working on for a long time, and we know communities have been asking for for a very long time too. When we last spoke about this earlier this year, this policy was was really in in no man's land. It was being delayed. The federal government was really dragging its feet on this after promising something, after promising regulations for the clean electricity system for years. So finally, the good news that I can share is that the federal government has put a ring on it, has at least started a formal process for how we come up with these rules and these regulations. And that came in the form of, of what are called the clean electricity regulations, which were announced just in August. And right now, as we speak in late to late October, they are under a consultation period. So folks are putting in their two cents for, for how this all works. But uh, finally, we kind of have a formal process. And I think it is in, in this work, we have so few wins sometimes, and it's so hard to see the wins that we, we have because the scope and scale of what we're fighting against in the climate crisis is so enormous. But I think there's just no way that this would have happened if people in communities, everyday folks, Indigenous clean energy leaders, workers, and folks in all walks of life were not demanding this of the federal government. So for folks who've gone to rallies, who've signed petitions, who've met with their, their elected officials or whatever the case may be, they're the folks who won this. And although the work isn't over, not nearly, I think it's just, you know, taking a deep breath, pausing for applause for the, for the amazing work that folks have done here is, is really important in this moment because that's exactly the sort of thing that'll get it to the, to the next step. It may shock, it, it may shock and surprise your listeners to hear and I know it is late October, so it's Halloween just around the corner. And the fossil fuel industry is ruining it for everyone. Even though we have these regulations on the books now, the the fossil fuel industry is 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 spending so much time and so much money trying to get politicians to make the wrong choice and trying to protect fossil fuel profits over the very health of our planet, the very health of our people and the, the the affordability and reliability benefits of the grid too. It for me is so frustrating and so ridiculous to to continue having to 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 fight the fossil fuel industry and their greed. Um, but uh, that's a big part of the conversation I think we're going to have today is because they are uh, they're going full out in this too. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had some background spooky sounds to include. Maybe I'll augment your voice with the with the fossil fuel industry just ruining for everything. Which, you know, it's that is terrifying, but it's also what keeps happening. So here we are. Okay, so I have a technical question, which may be only interesting to me, so I apologize to listeners. But from back in my understanding of Canadian law, I'm curious how the feds can regulate electricity. Because my understanding was power generation was a provincial matter. So how is this going to get implemented? So great question, and one that I'm sure listeners have heard uh, some premiers or some fossil fuel companies kind of wave their hands about saying it's unconstitutional or the federal government can't do this. And uh, the short answer is that they absolutely can, and they already have on the electricity system. What a Supreme Court decision a few years ago made very, very clear and reiterated is that the federal government has the jurisdiction to regulate emissions as uh, carbon dioxide and, and other uh, greenhouse gases are having this terrible effect on, on the planet and on our health, they have the jurisdiction under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act to do something about it. Uh, that's the same uh, kind of powers and, and, and mechanisms that they use to uh, regulate emissions in all sorts of sectors. So although it's really true that the, it's, it's up to the provinces to decide exactly what their electricity system looks like, uh, the federal government has every power to to mandate 
that it has low emissions or in fact no emissions. So they've already done this in 2016, 17, 18 in the federal coal phase-out regulations. Those regulations didn't actually say X, Y, or Z province can't have a coal plant. They said a coal plant must have no emissions, which is what what means we have to phase it out. So it's the same sort of mechanism that they've had success with already that is at the core of these this this policy here too. Fascinating. So that's great news for us who want to see good policy passed. And so you said that there is a ongoing consultation. How long does it go for? And so that's why folks get a sense of like, if they want to get their message in, can they still do so? Absolutely. So the formal consultation ends on November the 2nd. Depending on the air date here, that's that's not a whole lot of time left for folks to to get in as part of this formal consultation, but that's okay. If you do have a chance, definitely send uh, something in. If you just uh, uh, Google Clean Electricity Regulations Canada, it should be the first thing that comes up. But I'll be honest to say that the submission portal that they have is just ridiculously cumbersome and I think a real challenge for, for folks. So uh, the David Suzuki Foundation has has made our own tool at uh, davidsuzuki.org. It should be one of the first things that comes up for you. Again, a Google search of, of David Suzuki clean electricity should should help you out there too, where it's just a few fewer steps and a few a few things that we hope support folks in making that submission. But we know that the federal government will accept comments and accept, you know, having people's voice heard well after November 2nd. So if you're listening to this after that date, that's okay. Still call your your member of parliament, email them, meet with them if you can, and send in send in your thoughts too. We know that this will still go for a few months after that November deadline. It's still really important that they hear from you on it. Amazing. Okay. So now that we understand the framework that we're working in and how folks can get involved. Let's talk about what we wanted to say. What, like, what in the best version of this should we be asking for? It's pie in the sky. This one for a second. What's the best option? I mean, a hundred percent renewable electricity and having that electricity owned by communities, owned by indigenous nations, owned uh, publicly owned is is really where where we see the most benefits. Why we believe in this the most. That's where the most jobs happen. That's where uh, we can make sure that we remove some of the profit motive and make sure that energy and electricity stay affordable for folks. And just the amazing thing is that this isn't that pie in the sky. This is absolutely a possibility for Canada, for our communities uh, here in so-called Canada. This, this, is, this is why we do this work. It's why we're so excited to fight for it. And I think these regulations realistically may never get us all the way there but they are the single uh, biggest tool in the toolbox to make sure that we are living in a, in a paradigm, in a world where these things are possible. So that's what's so exciting for us is that this is within reach. I'll say that uh, if I can draw a contrast here, that's, that's behind door number one. Affordable, reliable, clean electricity, community-owned, great stuff. Uh, behind door number two is uh, a electricity system uh, that continues to prioritize the profits of fossil fuels over everything else. And the fossil fuel lobby, the fossil fuel industry is working so hard for the federal government to choose door number two at the expense of affordability of everyday people just to protect their own profits as their industry goes through its death throes. That's what's on the table here is is this sort of choice. And that's why we're fighting so hard for, for those benefits behind door number one. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. And so this would be obviously a huge win. And I think, as you noted, it, this is, in some ways, if you're looking for a clean energy grid, it is the easiest or it is the biggest single thing that we can get through. Is that correct? I mean, all climate solutions are important. You know, right. like I'm not yeah. going to say it's, 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 I'm not going to try and take anything away from the work that frontline folks are doing to stop fossil fuel companies from, from setting up in their, in their territories. Um, but it's, it's foundational. There's no way to, to, to solve the overall uh, climate problem without clean electricity in my view. So not only are we talking about enormous uh, greenhouse gas savings, uh, more than 340 million tons between now and 2050, if we get this thing right. But 
it's it unlocks the emissions uh, savings and it unlocks the climate solutions for so many other things too. As we talk about moving to electric public transit or electric vehicles, it's this clean grid that they're able to plug into. As we get fossil fuels out of our homes and, and use high efficiency electric uh, heat pumps to make sure that we're comfortable all year round, that we're cool in the summer and we're warm in the winter, that too has to plug into a clean electricity grid to really see those benefits and make sure it stays affordable. So it's just such a keystone. It's just such a foundational piece of this puzzle for me, which is why it's really important to get right so that we can get to work doing all of that other stuff here in Canada too. Right. And so you've published a op-ed in the Hill Times talking about this work. And one part of it, you mentioned that the devil is in the details. And so I'm curious if you could tell us what kind of details should we be looking out for? Like, what are the weasel words that might let us think we're doing good, but not, you know, what are the things that you really need to see in there? Yeah. Like, what are the details that we should be paying attention to? Yeah. The big risk here is that we end up with a regulation that is called the clean electricity regulations, but it is just guessed by a million cuts and edited and all sorts of loopholes and exemptions are put in place where it's it's just so ineffective that it's it's not worth it. And frankly, that's on the table. Like that is that's a real risk with this. So uh, those devils that are in the detail are a whole suite of exemptions and loopholes that the fossil fuel industry is, is fighting for. There's one that's a grandfathering clause, something that's called the end of prescribed life, which essentially just means that the fossil fuel industry is trying to make sure that they can uh, make their profits back on every uh, every piece of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure they put on the grid. So right now, if you put up a new gas plant, for instance, in Ontario or anywhere else in Canada, and you put it up uh, right now in 2023, you're able to freely pollute with no consequence until 2043, way beyond this 2035 target, which is a big problem and why we're seeing this, this thing get weakened. So it's, it's exemptions like that that we're fighting against. But this is what the fossil fuel industry is so good at, is is putting loopholes and extensions on the table um, like 10 at a time. Uh, so there's this end of prescribed life thing we're talking about. They're fighting for more flexibilities for peaker plants. Uh, they're trying to scare the, the federal government and the regulators into saying that it, it won't be reliable and and we need a bunch of fossil fuels on the grid to you know keep the lights on for folks. And And it's just not true. So the the work that, that we're all trying to do is is to push back on that. Because ultimately what this is about is, is this natural gas industry, but the fossil fuel industry more broadly, trying to protect itself. This fight for all of us is an existential fight because climate, the climate crisis is an existential crisis for, for human life. So any action to to move away from fossil fuels, which are the cause of this this destruction, is a good thing for everyone except for fossil fuel companies. If you're a fossil fuel company, this is bad news for you and you're going to use all of your resources to fight it. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. So the, you know, what we keep asking the federal government to do is simply not listen to them. And we know that's hard because we know from the federal lobbyist registry that just in the first six months of this year, the federal government met with the fossil fuel lobby more than 700 times. So for every time they may listen to someone like me or someone, some of your your listeners here who I know are really active on this, they're hearing from the fossil fuel industry a dozen more times. So that's what we're trying to, to put some daylight on. And that's what we're trying to fight against here too. Right. Yeah. That, that was my next question actually was about how you're seeing the, the fossil fuel company push back because obviously they're going to. I mean, even here in Ontario, as we're working on this energy regulation, there are fights about gas plants happening across this province right now for new plants that are being advertised as peaker plants. But then, you know, new studies have come out to say that they're probably actually going to take a bunch of baseload anyways, because, you know, we're not doing other work and we're not really investing enough in these other places. And so I don't know if there's anything more, but if you have a chance to expand a little bit more about how the the fossil companies are fighting back, I would love to hear it. Yeah, it is. It is on the basis of, of reliability and trying to do a bit of fear mongering on on that issue. I think to be clear, you and I have, have talked on this podcast before. We've we've been part of a, a number of studies with our academic partners 
because we too really believe and really uh, don't want to sacrifice anything when it comes to the affordability of the energy that people need to use in their everyday lives and the reliability of the electricity system and energy. These are life or death issues, you know? If the energy is not there when we need it, it is a very big issue. But I'm, we're confident in the in the work that we've done and the work that's happening really around the world that this is the direction folks are headed in, and and the the kind of fear mongering is what I'll call it is really really baseless. The this is not necessarily from from the fossil fuel industry, but the I'm sure many of your listeners have have heard in the last few weeks this advertisement campaign by the government of Alberta spreading some real, real nasty misinformation about this policy and about renewables in general, saying that folks are going to freeze in the dark or, or whatever it is they're saying. And these things are very easy to, to debunk and to, to myth bust using very old studies or to completely misrepresenting the, the, the things that they're trying to put forward as sources on this. But this is such an emotional issue that it's, 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 it's really challenging sometimes. But this is this is part of an example of what we're up against. Not only the 700 meetings in the first six months of the fossil fuel lobby with with Canadian officials, but in this example with the the Alberta government, spending eight million dollars of taxpayer money on an ad campaign attacking this issue. I was in Ottawa just this week for work, and they've you know they've hired folks to drive around in trucks with billboards glued on the side of the trucks on, on this sort of issue. It's the scope and scale of what we're up against and how how silly it becomes is is is, is a lot to see sometimes. I got to say, if you're fighting the need for fossil fuel regulations by needlessly driving a truck around a city to only emit more fossil fuels, it just it just hurts the brain a little bit, right? Like, it's like if they decided to just, like, shoot oil out of the ground and say that, look, how great it is, we need more of it. It's like, at least try to ensure that you're not making the problem worse with your advertisement to say we shouldn't take the problem seriously. Like, it's just so silly. (laughs) Yeah, if it weren't so tragic and so so consequential, it'd be a lot funnier, right? Um, Yeah. It's, it's... It's something. Uh, <laughs> and I think I don't, I really don't want to spend too much time uh, sure. uh, in terms of like getting too much oxygen to the what's going on uh, in terms of Alberta's opposition to this. But when I say Alberta, I do not mean the people of Alberta, right? We know that folks in Alberta, despite some of the choices that their, their, their government's made lately, really want to see climate action, really believe in, in, in trying. And there's some polling done by Atticus Data just this summer in July about this issue specifically, whether folks support this move to 100% clean electricity by 2035. 71% of people living in Canada support this. Even in Alberta, 64% of people living in Alberta support this. So it's my view that when when the Alberta government spends this time and energy on it, they're really not speaking for, for Albertans in this. And, and I have to imagine that they're just showing up for the benefit of the fossil fuel industry. So that's what we don't want to see. And what we would love is, is that the federal government has any courage at all to just not listen to that, to just listen instead to the, the amazing folks who are, are working in this industry already, more people working in clean energy than oil and gas in Canada. We want to see that, that be protected and to see that grow. People fighting for affordable energy. We've talked a lot on the podcast already about the very real struggle of energy poverty across Canada. And people wanting solutions to that. And we really do see this as that solution with wind and solar being the cheapest form of electricity in history. And with the suite of of specific supports that that are available for low and middle income folks when we move to clean electricity. I just just hope, and this is the work that, that so many people are doing. Is, is trying to get the federal government to choose choose that door number one where we see so many other benefits. Yeah, for sure. And so I would love to spend just a bit of time before we finish up here talking about the affordability piece, because I know we talked about it previously, but you know, this show goes on the radio, people might not remember or new folks might be listening. And we last week we had Mitchell Beer from the Energy Mix coming on talking and he was saying that, you know, we're approaching a time or maybe we're already here at a time where not just wind power or solar power is cheaper than, say, keeping coal online, 
but that wind and solar power plus batteries is cheaper, which is huge because it means that you solve the intermittency problem built in. And so the fact that it's no longer just cheaper to have solar or wind working, but the fact that you also can then include the ability to release that energy whenever you need it to is a fundamentally it fundamentally changes the game in terms of how our power exists. Cause like that's been the number one criticism has been intermittency. Well, the first criticism was it's too expensive. And then that one ran out because now it's too now it's cheaper. So they had to have a new problem. And so intermittency was a new problem they got to come up with as a reason why we could we couldn't move off it. And now even that's becoming cheaper. And so I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the even the larger vision. Like like the you know, we talked again previously about the ways that the 100% renewable energy could be done. But can you sort of talk a little bit about that and, and how possible it really is? Yeah. And I mean, a great quote that keeps getting thrown around lately is that it's now cheaper to save the planet than to ruin it. And that's been true for years now. But I, I really, you know, there's so much rhetoric that feels like it's 10 or 15 years old that we're hearing from politicians that wind and solar are expensive and, and trying to, to get folks afraid on that, that basis too. And that just simply is not true and hasn't been true for years. So wind and solar are the cheapest form of electricity in history. Uh, they're much cheaper than natural gas. They're much cheaper than coal or any other option that we're, we're seeing here. But your point is a, is a good one too, that we talk a lot about wind and solar because it's kind of the biggest new generation that's going to be put on the on the grid and maybe a lot of what people are going to begin seeing in, in their neighborhoods and their landscapes. Um, but it's a whole suite of things that make it possible. It's a diversity of, 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 of tools in that toolbox. So energy efficiency is certainly uh, far and away a really important uh, solution here that not only saves energy, but saves people money. This is one of the core solutions for how we keep energy bills low for people is energy efficiency and retrofitting of homes and all, all that sort of thing. But as you mentioned, the uh, batteries and other energy storage is cheaper than ever. And when you plug together wind, solar, and storage, those things together, providing the same services on the grid, making sure our grid runs, those things together are still cheaper than, than gas or other options. So, so this this makes it even more curious uh, why why we see some folks fighting against it, and it's only the folks who want to protect those profits for the things we're leaving behind for things like natural gas peaker plants or 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 other fossil fuels on the grid. And for for us, this is this is core. Um, uh, we we don't want to make decisions that that leave folks spending more on energy, and that's that's why we're we're part of all these these studies that, that do this work. For this suite of studies in Canada uh, from the Canadian Climate Institute, they crunched the numbers on this and shown that on average, uh, the cost of energy in a household goes down by 12% when we move to clean electricity, and it goes down uh, in, across every income category. Um, the Clean Energy Canada released a study just this summer kind of comparing a house today with, with uh, all the things that are available for folks to, to use today. If you have a house that uses clean energy with things like heat pumps and electric cars or whatever, you're saving about $800 a month on your energy bills, about $10,000 a year on your energy bills uh, today. And that's only going to get better in the future. So it's our work to make sure that those options are affordable and available for everyone, not just uh, folks who can afford an electric car today. So affordability is at the, at the key of this. You know, it's hard to shake a stick at the hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of climate damage that we're, we're staring down the barrel of right now in the worst summer of, of climate crisis impacts that we've ever seen in so-called Canada. It, this isn't going to get better. And this isn't going to get better if we continue to double down with fossil fuels. It, it's like it's saving people money. It's saving the, the economy money, so to speak, in, in these bigger choices. But it's it's very expensive to die in a climate hellfire. <laughs> If, if folks are only thinking about the affordability pieces here, but it's just incumbent on us to to not have that be be our legacy, and that's why I think I talk at the at the top of these conversations too about recognizing the wins and recognizing the little steps that we're all making, and even having this conversation about a real regulation that's before the federal government is in itself a win because I wish we didn't live in such a such a broken world, but but. Every every step of, of, of this journey is really hard fought 
really hard one. So, so that's that's the work ahead, and that's uh, that's why I'm so excited to um, to be building such solidarity and affinity with folks uh, who who care about this issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if there's anything I've learned from sports, it is celebrate every victory because you lose a lot, and so you know, like. As a as a Jays fan, I spent most of my year this year pulling my hair out. But like, what's funny about it is like you still the thing we remember is as sports fans is like the 2015 you know run into the playoffs, which they ultimately ended up didn't win everything. But like the moments of victory throughout it were still great, you know, and and they galvanize you to keep going, right? Like if you don't allow yourself to celebrate the small wins, you will never get to the big wins because you'll lose energy. Right. Like you just have to let yourself appreciate and enjoy when something good has happened or else you will never be able to sustain yourself to get the big wins that we know and believe are possible. So with that, I just want to give you a chance to give let us people let people know again how they can support this and get involved. So if you want us to remind people how they can sign on to your work or follow Dave's Zuki Foundation and stuff like that, please do. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say at the top that there's so many other amazing groups, so local environmental groups, indigenous clean energy leaders, workers who are really active on this file too. But, but as, as a way of a one-stop shop to get involved here at davidsuzuki.org is a great place to start. Or, or Googling David Suzuki and clean electricity will take you to our work, all the kind of reports on affordability and reliability and how to get involved and how to hold um, our elected officials accountable to this is all there for you online. Um, but uh, but we, as always, really encourage folks to kind of uh, look around to what's happening in your community. If there's a, a group of uh, young folks organizing climate strikes or whatever the case may be, if there are frontline Indigenous communities who who are looking for your support, it's all part of the same puzzle. So, so, so please look out for that too. I hope that the next time we chat, we're celebrating another win. When uh, when we win these clean electricity regs and we get to talk about the how, uh, about who owns it, about uh, how to lock in these benefits for indigenous ownership, community ownership, and public ownership, which is which is what gets us really excited these days. But thanks so much for for the time and for the conversation today. Yeah, thank you. So for folks, this has been Stephen Thomas, the Clean Energy Manager with the David Suzuki Foundation. Always great to have you on, folks. If you can submit some some comments and push your MPs. That will be huge. And hopefully, yeah, we'll have back on and talk about how we do this and in implementing our wins, which honestly would be amazing. And as it will be another challenge, but a challenge that will be so fun because we're building collective power. Thanks so much, Stephen, and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. Take care.